This episode is sponsored by Rye Law Group. Now, these Esquires have dispensed with the traditional law firm model, opting instead for a streamlined approach. Because they are entrepreneurs themselves, they bring the founder mindset through all phases of launching a business. From formation, through venture capital fundraising, private placements, joint ventures, acquisitions, and what all entrepreneurs hope for, an exit. Headquartered in Santa Monica, but accessible globally, think of Rye Law Group as your business law co-founder. You can schedule a consultation at rylawgroup.com, and that's spelled R-I-E, lawgroup.com. On this episode, we have David de Jesus. His parents immigrated from the Philippines, and David was born in the U.S. After a portion of his youth in Alaska, he settled in Seattle and eventually joined Microsoft as an analyst. He became intrigued with being a developer and shifted his career in that direction. After being with a few startups that got sold, he worked for Red Bull. He leverages all of that experience as a venture capitalist now. David, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, Asim. Thank you for having me. That's really great. Exciting. Yeah, it's really good to have you on. Um, I think um, one of the things that has impressed me beyond just a number of different entrepreneurial activities you've been involved in is the the diversity of uh, your your, uh, upbringing and kind of where all you've been. And I think in the very first uh, time we met, um, you shared how you spent a part of your youth in Alaska. Yeah, yeah. So share about Um, that. How did that uh, come about? Uh, coming from an immigrant family, my mom and dad, um, you know, had immigrated from the Philippines. I was actually born in Virginia Beach, um, so pretty close to the Naval Station. Uh, my uncle was a was a high level ranking officer. Uh, brought my mom and my dad over um, on one of the boats, and um, from there, you know, I think the challenge of of any kind of immigrant. Um, at the time is, is looking for work or looking for solid income. My dad, um, you know, kind of an entrepreneurial guy, but also the fact that he came from a corporate, like corporate job, um, couldn't find anything in a lateral role. So uh, we had other family members in Alaska that were um, you know, asking him to come over. And we ended up in a, a little town called Barrow. Um, and for reference for, for the nerds and movie nerds, um, 30 Days of Night was based, mm. the, 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 the comic book was based in Barrow, Alaska. Yes. And it, because, the, you know, at times in the winter, it's like almost, you know, almost three months of no light kind of because of the horizon. <laughs> so uh, that movie was based out there. But growing up there, I grew up there from, you know, um, you know I think one or two years old to 11. So I say that I was out there for 11 years. And, um, and and yeah, it was. I think it was quite interesting because no perspective of of the lower forty eight, which is what we called it, and a hundred percent, you know, um, kind of the the rural native perspective, which was 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 quite awesome because you know you you kind of got a good idea of what it was actually like to live there. Um, but a lot of people were were starting to move there at the same time, so um, a lot of other immigrants from different places. Um, because it offered so much. Um, but both my mom and dad were entrepreneurs and they found different, you know, types of uh, things out there. So my mom started her own daycare system. Um, and then my dad had started a taxi company and uh, originally was part of, um, an expediting group that brought Mm -hmm. supplies to different, uh, parts of the, you know, different villages. So yeah, 
Um, and then from there, you know, we moved, we moved to Seattle. Well, so you ended up doing middle school, high school and university in Seattle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so a little bit of middle school in Seattle. Um, I think, you know, my parents finally found out it was time for me to kind of get out. I have, a, I have a ton of other siblings that were kind of making the, the, um, the move or the, the immigration move from the Philippines to the U.S., it was almost like I was the only child with five sets of parents rather than, uh, you know, like having all these siblings in the same way. But we came to Seattle where my <clears throat> other family members were like my, my sister actually had settled down there and, um, Seattle kind of offered a new perspective because, um, for one, like, um, mom and dad are super Catholic. So they wanted me to get into, yeah. you know, private Catholic school sure. <laughs> and, yeah. and there was no other choice. Um, what kinds of things were you reading when you were in Seattle? I was actually an avid, uh, comic book card and, and, uh, and comic book collector. And, and, you know, I didn't realize the value of it, but I do remember one little story, which is there was a summer where I came to Seattle and I had to go back to Alaska to go back to school. And there was a, a Gambit, you know, series, like Marvel series that I really, really wanted. And then I cried. I was crying for it. I was like, I need this series. I don't know. Why. I didn't know why I needed it. And I was calling around to all the different comic shops and, and only one had it. But it was it was an hour away and we had to go back. We had to go to the airport. And, um, you know, funny thing is, like my brother being the sweetheart that he is, he disappeared. He were like, we're like where is he? He needs to take us to the airport. He, you know, he's, he's, supposed to, he's supposed to be our ride to the airport. But the funny thing is he rushed over there, grabbed one, two, three, and four for me and brought him back and didn't show me until I was, I had to leave to the airport. So I was in this stinky mood all the way until we had to get on the plane or, you know, close to it. And he finally brought it to me. I was like, Hey, you know, like, look, like, look what I got for you. You know, it, it was, it was it's amazing. Awesome. My mom in Alaska had run, um, she was, she was running a show on a radio station there. Oh, and so wow. I was exposed to a lot of music. I was exposed to like a, a broad, broad range of music. Um, uh, but her specialty was, um, you know, Filipino love songs. So like a lot of romantic music from, from the Philippines. In and Tagalog? She, yeah, in Tagalog. And she was actually playing it in, uh, you know, on the radio station, uh, because I think, there was a, a pretty heavy Filipino community at the time, you know, knowing that there was jobs and opportunities. Yeah. But that exposure had given me like a lot of ideas and music. Everyone, you know, everyone wanted to sing. Everyone wanted to dance. I think that the, the, the amount of talent that the Philippines like produces is quite interesting, but I'll, I'll talk about, I'll talk about why actually, I think um, it's funny that that dynamic exists because um, at that time, I think that was the only way to kind of, uh, jump classes. If you think about it in, mm. in the Philippines, social like, mobility, social mobility. So the reason you would want your kids, so have, instead of going the traditional route, uh, in terms of, you know, school or, or academia in the Philippines, obviously you wanted that for your kids, but at the same time, if they had any slight ability you would nurture that a hundred times more. Nice. That's great. And so you're Tagalog speaking? I can't speak a little. Well, I can, I can understand a little bit now as I get older. But um, the funny thing is, 
I can understand more Spanish and, and Latin based languages than, yeah. than Indonesian based languages. Well, so after you studying in, in Seattle, what did you study uh, at university? So I went to a college prep high school. Uh, it was an all boys high school. And the creative part of me was just rebelling at the time. And I was just mm -hmm. like, well, I'm going to go to art school, or I'm going to do something else. And I'm going to, you know, I, I think, I think there's this natural part of me that didn't want to do what my parents wanted so heavily. But everyone that went to the school, you know, they've all become, you know, successful athletes or, um, or, or kind of high level professions. And I, sh you know, it's like, I just fought against that so much also because I also had had an entrepreneurial streak like right out of high school as well. And um, the thing is, right out to high school, I took a year off. And then I started at Seattle University, I did okay, I think, um, you know, I stayed there for a couple of semesters and then I had to drop out and it's because I had a son actually. So oh, okay. the other part of the other part of life was like, wow, I was, I was just kind of in a rush to, to live on my own and be on my own, not realizing that that's not exactly what you should do with, with limited resources. But mm -hmm. um, having a child at, the, at, at kind of 18, 19 was, was a really big kind of eye opener. And so the hustle in me kind of um, took over. And so okay. after Seattle University, um, you know, I just went right to work. So I finished online. I think, you know, the University of Phoenix actually gets a bad rap, but um, it was actually good education and business management. So kind of, kind of middle to upper level management, um, you know, exposure because the people I was going to school with were actually at Boeing, at, at Microsoft, at different companies that were looking for upward mobility as well. Uh, I finished that and I got my first real job at Microsoft. But the reason I got the job um, was interesting because at the time I was, I was kind of doing the entrepreneur thing as well. And we had a couple friends and I had been building a company. Um, this was when the UFC the, the, you know, was, was becoming really, really exciting. Right. And we launched our own professional uh, MMA group and oh. you know doing the marketing but also the promotion right. and we had launched two professional mma fights in, in the span of 18 months um and that was probably the most exciting entrepreneurial experience i've ever had but because of that experience and doing online marketing um i had uncovered some tactics that were you know a little bit in the gray area in terms of promoting something online and i think right now uh, for people who are kind of watching like, um, you know, make money at this or do a digital agency at this or, or the Ty Lopez's of the world. It's really quite interesting because um, uh, that, that experience actually got me the job at Microsoft as a, a um, kind of a traffic quality expert on the ad platform. Okay. So nice. I understood both white hat and, you know, gray hat and black hat methodologies and how to actually generate, you know, traffic on the internet. And so as Microsoft was taking on uh, Yahoo's click feeds, which was, a, they acquired it, all that traffic, you know, our team was responsible for analyzing all that, all that server traffic and, you know, uh, also responsible for chargebacks for advertisers. If, if that traffic was, was posted or published on a, uh, fraudulent website but yeah that was my first real job uh, my first real professional job and, and it was it was like a 
uh, an interesting time <laughs> to yeah. be to be at Microsoft. Um, but all the professional skills, all the professional corporate exposure, um, that was all I needed to understand. Like maybe corporate's not the corporate ladder is not exactly my thing, gotcha. but I can I can appreciate it. You know. Right, and you can you can be a star at it. It's just your choice whether you want to do it or not. Yeah, you have to you have to definitely. It's a mental choice for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so I look at uh, your next experience at Red Bull Media Studio, and I think about your MMA experience and and your Microsoft experience and some of the marketing things we've been talking about, and that seems like a great marriage. So share with us about that experience. Yeah, I'll 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 like uh, I'll jump into that as well. So. After Microsoft, um, I there was a there was a kind of inflection point there as well. Hmm. We were working on a platform, but I didn't really um, enjoy being kind of a, an analyst. I think I thought there was more to this, right? So being an analyst, you you kind of receive the data, you kind of you kind of pull it, you you use it, and you analyze it. But the people who were actually winning and getting the most credit in terms of you know in the spotlight, the shine. Uh, were the developers and at Microsoft, you know, Balmer was known to kind of go developers, developers, developers. That was his big like charge to, uh, um, to, to like to growth and to, you know, development. And I realized that I was like, you know, th there is a interesting factor here because it, being an engineer or developer was definitely more my style. Microsoft offered a little bit uh, in terms of, you know, uh, extracurricular learning. So I took everything that they offered, uh, but then I just reapplied to University of Washington, um, oh, okay. got a couple certificates in, in Python learning and, and oh, a smart. couple of certificates there. Cool. Uh, so it is self, somewhat self-taught, pretty yeah. much taught myself how to code in, in, in the span of um, nine months. That's great. And then found myself at a startup here in LA. And so as soon as I, as soon as I felt comfortable and there's no actual feeling of comfort, it's just like, <laughs> I can code, I can code. Right. Uh, I came out to LA and, and was hired um, by an engineer that I looked up to for this startup. We built um, the front end and back end, um, the total stack that, that, you know, was required. Um, eventually the, the company sold. Um, and it was an inventory management type of application. So we were playing around in the SaaS world, so enterprise SaaS. After that, I, I went to a, an agency called Precision Development. That group um, eventually also sold to Fandango Universal mm -hmm. um, based on the streaming, live streaming stuff that we're, or not live streaming, sorry, movie streaming and, and digital rights management platforms that we we're kind of working on. Next, after that, that there, there's an opportunity at Red Bull that just opened up because they were pouring a ton of money into the Red Bull TV and Red Bull music platforms. Right. Um, and so from there, um, that job kind of opened up, you know, what was, what it's truly like to be at, at a cool corporate company. And, and obviously, you know, Red Bull definitely has a lot of culture to, to speak about. Um, they, they, invented the term culture marketing. You know, I was there for about three and a half, four years. And you know, when you're, when you're kind of building something from scratch, like they were doing and pouring a lot of resources into it, there's definitely a lot of energy and excitement um, behind it. Um, but again, you know, when things don't necessarily pan out or, or you find out that the ship isn't going to 
sale, you start to, you start to feel it. You start to understand, you know, you start to feel that within the company. Uh, so I started looking for opportunities within Red Bull to, to, to work on different projects. And I think there's a part of me that, that also is like a entrepreneur because I like, I like to change things from the inside. Nice. So that it presented itself and um, I made some really good friends at the, at what's called the Red Bull High Performance Gym. And the Red Bull, Red Bull High, High Performance Gym is, uh, is a gym dedicated to working with all the action sports athletes. And they, you know, they put them through the battery of different technologies, uh, coming up with different uh, interventions and solutions to get these athletes prepped. Part of what you did also there was given your programming and coding, you were doing mobile apps. Yeah. So we, I built, I built uh, several consumer-facing apps, but also uh, internal um, technologies. Cool. Very cool. Um, share with us about five points studio. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so I think <laughs> being a, being an entrepreneur also, it, it's quite interesting because, um, making a software developer, um, salary is quite awesome. But I also knew that, you know, it's almost, it wasn't sustainable for me to, to kind of keep, um, in that trajectory. Like I didn't want to go to management. I didn't want to go be a, um, I didn't want to be a uh, technical project manager or principal mm -hmm. or yeah. getting, I didn't want to get more technical. I kind of wanted to pull back a little bit and be more entrepreneurial. Um, but at the same time, my wife being, you know, doing what she does, she's a wardrobe stylist for um, celebrity print magazine uh, type things. And she loves it. Um, so I thought, you know, with the salary that I was building, a lot of it went to investments. And then one of my main investments was, um, uh, a small business. And so our small business now is called five point studio, but it's, um, it's a film in the photo location, uh, here in LA. And we have hosted, um, a Super Bowl commercial. We've hosted, um, big brands all the way down, you know, even, even independent YouTube stars. Um, and it's been really fun actually. And, and in the same time, there are these, these platforms called, uh, you know, one's called Superior space, but there's a few other kind of marketplace type platforms that offer, um, rentals. Um, and it was really easy to kind of just jump on these platforms and kind of build that business pretty quickly. Whereas if you were to do that kind of manually, it would take a lot of really organic or manual uh, relationships. Mm. So this offered the kind of that mid market um, studio offering. And then we, we maximize that market like as much as possible. So for the last few years, it's actually been um, um, an income source in addition to the services, my, my services business that I was building. Nice. Oh, that's fantastic. Services being the software development service. Yeah, soft, exactly. Yeah. So software development. And um, as soon as I launched that, I mean, Red Bull had let me go. Um, but as soon as I launched both my studio and the services company, um, we had already built, we had, I had built a relationship with, with the high performance gym and we raised uh, a 250K um, internal fund, I guess, if you will. Like we raised 250K toward a project that we we're building that had a lot to do with um, athletes and music. Um, nice. So it was, it was, it was a combination of a fun project, got to work with a lot of really cool people. And, and Lindsey Vaughn was one of our, our athletes. Nice. Yeah. 
And uh, the project was looking at how athletes respond to music. I think that we, we already kind of analyzed past that, but we were looking at a very, very specific notion. Uh, the hypothesis was, you know, if you could, if you could hyper-parameterize music and align that with um, an athlete's listening style and activity, you could, imp- you, could, you could essentially prime them to increase their performance when the performance was going to happen. So with, with, you know, with the right priming, with the right you know, timing and tempo, during their training series, you could actually get their, you know, their, their bio performance to go there. So their physiology, not, not only to get better, uh, you know, improve their physiology at the time of training, uh, but at the same time, um, use it for priming purposes when they're about to perform. So doing something in the act. That's amazing. Um, that sounds far more sophisticated than binaural beats. Well, it, it, that binaural beats actually had a, had a big part in that study. And we, yeah. we were working with uh, um, uh, Mount Sinai in New York. Uh, New York, uh, Dr. David Petrino, I'll just kind of mention him here. But Dr. David Petrino, they have a lab dedicated to um, athletes and we're doing part of the study with them. Um, and they basically took some of our hypotheses and proved it in, in their uh, lab. I think it's called Lab 100, uh, but I'll have to come back to that. But yeah, they have a specific cool. lab that's dedicated to just this. Nice. Um, and they, they, they kind of um, built it so that they could test some of these hypotheses out um, nice. Nice. At, at big scale. So the white paper comes out you know you can you can talk about it there's like science behind everything so yeah yeah oh that's so fascinating and i wanted to chat more about your um work as a, a vc but um i noticed one thing on your profile brick and i wanted to ask yeah. about that. being an advisor to that company i sent uh, i know tommy very well now um he is is uh he's off on his own trajectory and he is um kind of building a research base of what digital wellness is and he, he's kind of coining or just owning you know the term digital wellness we originally started with uh, a, a technical application so that's what the that's the reason he kind of came into my radar but i put on my my business hat and i put on you know a, a few other um components here and i realized that he's building a brand mm. um and it's not exactly about technology it's actually his his own brand of digital wellness. Um, and so throughout this process, I convinced him not to build an app, you know, and it was actually counterintuitive, but at the same time, um, you know, engaging me as a, engaging me as an advisor, uh, I told him honestly, like, if you're trying to fix, you know, people's um, habits on their phones, um, why make an app for a phone? You know, it's like we're trying to kind of actually deter them, but it's a, you know, there, there's a functionality to it. Uh, and he, he did come out with a beta. David, I've always found you to be very um, inquisitive, very restless, and always on this path of like uh, self-improvement, um, which I learned more about today. That was, those were nice nuggets. You're bringing all of those skills to bear as a venture capitalist now. And so tell yeah. us a little bit about the platform you're involved with there, yeah. uh, VU Venture Partners. I would love to. Um, and that, that actually is, is a great way to kind of say it because 
I think there's been a, a natural um, evolution of what this asset class has come to. And, you know, to put it in perspective, it's still the smallest asset class in within private equity, right? And, but it has such incredible returns and impact in terms of what, you know, ventures um, have been invested in. And it's particularly the reason that we, you know, are using this platform today, for example, on Zoom and, and all these other things uh, you know, that we use on a daily basis. Um, so the total impact is, is measurable and that's how I justify partaking. But at the same time, within venture capital, I think there just hasn't been enough um, you know, repre representation of, of all the incredible um, you know, people that can, that can actually make a difference. And so that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm taking part. All up to now, up to this point, all the training that I've gone through has just been preparing me mostly just to be an investor, which is really weird. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, cause the, cause I realized that the art and science of investing is really about controlling your emotions, being, you know, being, um, being inquisitive, just like you're saying, uh, questioning things, um, you know, checking on your consensus, really checking consensus and really seeing, you know, why you're agreeing to something or disagreeing with something and checking your gut. But VU stands for Venture University. We, we accelerate uh, people who are a little bit in their careers that have finally made a decision to say, hey, we'd like to go into institutional investing. And typically, here's an example. I mean, there's, there's people with you know, medical degrees. There's people with uh, very high level eye banking experience and, and private equity experience, but there's also college grads who are pre-MBA um, in the program. And what that offers us is, is, a, is a totally diverse, um, you know, uh, platform to engage with. Uh, let's say, all right, I'll break it down. We do, we bring on 35 new investors per quarter. It's a very, like, very selective process. And then in this process, we put all these 35 people into kind of a, a, uh, an immersive experience to go out, find companies that you would invest in, bring them to the table, battle them like, like Pokemon and see who has the best, you know, company. Uh, and then come up with all the due diligence and do the due diligence to, to um, essentially justify why you would invest in this company. Um, so that includes conviction. That includes, you know, really battling it out for, for the founders that you um, are supporting. And then you go in there with the GPs and not only get their, their buy-in, but then you have to present them to the LPs and say, Hey, these are, this is a company that we would actually want to invest in. Yeah. Nice. The, the, that, that experience is pretty unique in the sense that, um, you know, as an angel investor, as a scout, I think you have a, just a couple more degrees away from the founders. Uh, Venture University gives you that experience for a whole quarter. And afterwards, um, success rates are pretty high. Like we, we see that, you know, a good handful of people go off to other funds. So, you know, I'll talk about a few, Pegasus, Touchdown, um, Plug and Play. So there are some really well-renowned funds that, that are, are, are apprentices go to um, but because of this fellowship um, you now have like a, a large kind of base of other VCs to, to be a part of and then a small portion of them actually go out and raise their own funds which is mm -hmm. quite interesting as well so they become emerging managers 
yeah. um, and start to get into that ecosystem as well. Very cool. No, that sounds like a fascinating platform. What, what I'm exploring right now, just as a, as a offering is, is, you know, how to differentiate. And I think differentiation right now is, is important to LPs and, and right. you know, thinking about new strategies. Um, no, that's, that's critical. I'd love to hear from you. Like what, what type of entrepreneurs do you like to work with? Oh, this is cool, actually. I mean, the, the, I, I talked about it a little bit um, with a friend, but in, a, in the latest partner meeting, um, we walked away with um, one of our GPs, you know, had worked with Zuck, and I calls him Zuck, but uh, it's that twinkle in the eye, but not only that, tactically, they're a grandmaster in chess, right? So the, tactically, they're able to break down every single move that they're going to do um, way ahead of time. And so understanding the strategy so soon, so quickly, uh, it makes it so that they can pretty much execute on everything that they've imagined. Mm. And now I've had a chance to actually talk to some, you know, a few, very small handful. And not to say that they're, you know, they're going to be the, mo the most amazing. Uh, you, you can't really predict that in the early stage. But to tie that with the market, the product, and all the other criteria that you, you make a decision on, it, it's that like grandmaster foresight that, that they can explain it to a T, like where they're going to be in the next 18 months, where the business is going to be in the next 18 months. And if there's no budging, like it, it's, yeah. it's solid. I, I couldn't... I, I tried to practice that myself, but my goodness, you know, when you talk to the, those types of types of founders, I, you almost just say, okay, you know, please take my money, give me a little allocation, please, in your business. Uh, you know, I'd love to work with you, that type of thing. Nice. But all the other entrepreneurs that you tell no to, it's not a, it's never a hard no. It's it's mostly like, let's let's build that let's build that flow let's get that you know let's get that energy up and, and enthusiasm toward what you're doing and um you know sooner or later they'll figure out that strategy as well but yeah so two two founders i've talked to so far that had that and then when you do the due diligence and you speak to their previous investors or their other investors you realize that they're like yeah, this is the guy, you know, this is <laughs> like, I, you know, I saw them in their previous company, but yeah, this is the guy. Nice. It, it's never really about like the product. It's, it's amazing or anything else. It's really like, wow, yeah. they've, they've tracked this founder for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Kind of going back on our other conversations. And I mean, raising a fund is, is very entrepreneurial. Like it, it's a, it's probably harder than being a, at this point, it's harder than being a, um, you know, starting a company it's, it's yeah. just really crazy what what kind of mental gymnastics you have to go through to kind of decide that yes i'm going to go raise a fund <laughs> yeah it uh, that was probably one of the most grueling times of my life those 18 months of fundraising <laughs> we would not want to go back to that yeah, we'll have to <laughs> we'll have to uh talk about it some more uh, you know when oh, we should actually like you know in the in the midst of it and i'm I'm like crying to us, to you and saying, Hey, <laughs> it's hurting, but yeah. yeah. One, one foot in front of the other brother. Yeah. It's like the yeah. best, You just get to keep at it. Just keep at it. Well, listen, David, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Same. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive and Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.